Hello, Bookstu viewers and listeners, since we are now a podcast. Today, I'm very happy to introduce you to a writer who was introduced to me by another writer. You'll all remember Sandaria Fay, who wrote the great novel Mourner's Bench. Sandaria, out of the blue, sent me an email one day and said, oh, you have to talk to my friend Renee Sims, who's another writer. And then six months went by, and I bought Renee's awesome collection of short stories called Meet Behind Mars. And she's going to be right with you in a minute, but I just want to read you one quick little paragraph from one of the stories because it, it so caught me. Um, it's a very short little part, and um, in the story, Renee is talking about a writer or uh, a, a woman who's trying to be a writer. Her name is Hattie. And Hattie says, her manuscript was a wasteland of half-formed ideas. The writing workshop she took at Oakland Commun County Community College only confused her more. The writing instructor had mastered one response, a slight smile, as if she just smelled oven-baked cookies, while the participants, other later-in-life writers who knew less than Hattie about writing, waited their turns to make snarky remarks about the manuscript up for review. You should turn your novel into a vampire story, a retired electrician had told her. Okay, so the writer of those words, so you hear the humor in it, but yet there's something behind there as well, is Renee Sims. Welcome, Renee. I'm so glad that you're here, for all the way from the state of Washington, and all the way from your background as both a lawyer and a person with an MFA. So maybe you can tell our viewers slash listeners a little bit about how you made that swerve. Sure. Um, in undergrad, I was studying English literature um, and I had taken all of the core classes uh, to get a major in English Lit. And then I decided that I was bored with the canon um, and the way that it was being presented to me. So I applied uh, to do an independent concentration program and I put together um, courses in philosophy, history, political science, and literature. Um, and that was much more interesting to me, but I still didn't know at that point what I was gonna do with this degree once I finished. Um, and I had some friends whose parents were lawyers and it was also the 1980s and there was the Cosby show with Felicia Rashad playing an <laughs> attorney every week. And so I just decided to go to law school um, really without having a role model, either in my immediate family or in any of the friends, you know, in our neighborhood, I didn't know any lawyers. Um, and once I got to law school, I knew pretty quickly that this was a mistake, but everyone was so invested in me becoming an attorney that I just stuck it out. I did the three years, I took the bar exam and I practiced for four years. And, um, then I decided that I really did love literature and writing, and I decided to leave law and to enter an MFA program. So you know what, your background, I have to say, reminds me, I just finished Michelle Obama's book, Becoming. I don't know if you've yeah. read it yet, but she also, you know, it was interesting because she had a lot of pressure on her, um, expectations from her family and friends to because she was such a good student to become an attorney, but her heart was really in, much more in reaching out to the community and not in practicing law. Did you read her book? 
I did, and I saw her when she came to Tacoma, Washington, a packed house at the Tacoma Dome. Um, yeah, I think that that is something that is common um, for, and I'm in Michelle Obama's generation. I think for African Americans of a certain age, there was an expectation that you know you get um, a, a profession uh, that had a certain status. Um, that was respectable, that would make people proud. And law, I mean, when you think about the civil rights movement and the role that lawyers played, um, I can understand people being invested in African-Americans going into law. Um, but if you're someone who really loves humanities and the arts, I think it can be difficult because the language that's involved with um, the legal profession is much different than the language I use as a creative writer. So when you were in law school, did you feel kind of like squelched? Because, I mean, it's hard, especially, you know, the first year from everything I've read is insane. And then kind of continuing to pursue something where you really didn't feel like your, your heart was 100% in it. Did you pay any attention to writing or do any writing when you were in law school? I can't say that I did. I did reading. Um, as a way to um, relax, right, and to have something that I enjoyed. Uh, but I did find ways to be creative as a lawyer. And I found that opening statements, because I was a litigator, so I was uh -huh. in court, you know, trying cases, doing opening statements, talking directly to the jury, doing closing statements were a way for me to craft a narrative and to try to persuade the jurors in a way that I liked. Um, so, so I liked that part. So that's an interesting connection, too, because litigators are, um, by virtue of their profession, performers, when you come right down to it, performers and persuaders. So now you're working in academia and you're teaching, so you also have to be basically a performer and a persuader. Absolutely. You get it, right? It's all a performance. <laughs> uh, teaching is a performance to a certain extent, and yeah, practicing law, being a litigator is a performance. So those things I um, found to be consistent, right? Like there, there's a, you know, a big difference between teaching and practicing law, but there are things that are in common. I think one of them is being able to talk to an audience um, and to be persuasive and, you know, communicate in a way that is clear. One of the things that I was able to do, do as a litigator is that I was always able to tell a story that the jurors could understand. And I think that is a challenge for some lawyers and, and brilliant lawyers. They understand the law. They understand, um, you know, all the fine intricacies of, you know, legal procedure, but they can't tell a story to save their lives, right? So <laughs> that's the advantage that I had. So um, did you have any cases that kind of um, you ever thought, ooh, you know, maybe I'll write about this. Did any, was there ever a connection there? Yeah, so after I left the practice of law, um, I moved to Los Angeles. Um, I was in Detroit when I was practicing. Then I moved to Los Angeles and I worked for um, a law firm. And then I worked for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund as uh, a legal assistant. Um, and at the law firm, I was uh, working on cases that involved um, big companies like Monsanto and, and Mycogen, right? So people who produce Roundup and, you know, Boo. are in... <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't great work, but it was interesting. 
like reading those cases and seeing how people try to steal the secrets of each other and, you know, swipe their finger to get the whatever, you know, it, 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 it did, I did think at some point that I would write about that, um, but it became less interesting to me once I actually did start focusing on writing. I may come back to it. Um, I started stories that thought about, um, you know, that type of intrigue, but no, I can't say that there's any one case um, that I've ever put down in fiction. Do you have a drawer full of stories that are unfinished that you kind of waver between I'm just going to get rid of this or I'm just going to put it in. I mean, it seems to me all writers I've spoken to have a drawer. Maybe it's in a, a falling down Ikea dresser or something, but they always have that drawer. And I did speak to one writer who actually got so fed up with, you know, three unsold novels that he pulled something out of the drawer and that was his first sold novel. So what do, what do you have lurking around in that bureau? Yeah, I've got a broken down, exactly, Ikea <laughs> furniture with, with lots of first drafts of things. Um, and I don't think of them as failures, right? I think of them as me practicing writing until my skills were able to match the big ideas that I had. Um, so the first novel that I wrote um, was my thesis for my MFA program. And at some point I realized it wasn't working. Um, and then I also, a couple years after I had started that novel, um, decided to write an essay that took um, the factual events that were the basis of the novel. Um, and I, I wrote a nonfiction essay about it instead. And it was great. And once I'd gotten that out, I figured, huh, so this genre was the genre I should have been working on to tell this story. And then it gave me permission to kind of look at that novel as practice and to walk away from it. But so then you can, do you feel like you can shift fluidly back and forth between nonfiction and fiction? Because, I mean, that's, I, there aren't many writers, I don't think, that do that. I don't know if I would say that I'm fluid at it, but I do like nonfiction. I've been reading um, Zadie uh, Smith's um, collection of essays, Feel Free. Um, and I love her nonfiction writing. Um, I, I really like that genre. And I think that there are, um, there are things that I want to write about that will be best served by that type of structure. Um, because fiction is more like puppeteering, right? Um, and you have to dramatize scenes. Um, and I think there are certain stories that are best told in, in, you know, in fiction as opposed to nonfiction. Um, I don't know that I move so smoothly between the two, but I'm definitely always making that shift and always interested in both at the same time. But your primary uh, occupation is um, as an assistant professor. I always get mixed up between assistant and associate professors. In any case, you teach. Um, I wanted to ask you about that because I have a whole uh, list that I've been keeping of books by black women academics. And they are, you know, it's like one PhD after another. It's genius thoughts and great writing and great presentations that I've been to see. I'll be putting up pictures of them um, for the viewers and uh, uh, to, to see. And also there is a statistic about black women being 
the most highly educated, or having, let's see, let me, I wrote it down so I would get it right because I don't want anyone to accuse me of lying with statistics. So this was from the National Center for Education Statistics. By race and gender, a higher percentage of black women are enrolled in college than any other group. So um, do you think family expectations play into that? Um, what makes academia so such an attractive proposition for black women, do you think? Um, I think that, well, one of the things that I heard about that statistic, and this was um, Tressie um, McMillan Cottom, and I, I hope I'm getting her name correct. Um, she wrote a book entitled Lower Ed, in which she talked about, she talks about um, the for-profit schools that kind of proliferated education at one point, um, and how so it so many African Americans and people of color and people from um, marginalized communities got caught up in paying for their education. These schools that are just there to make a profit, um, and that's one reason why we have um, that skew in numbers of African American women being overrepresented um, or being you know, highly educated compared to other groups, because a lot of them fell into that trap of the for-profit schools. Um, but I also think education is just something, again, in the Black community that has historically been viewed as a way to rise up in society, right? Um, that education is something that is um, encouraged in a lot of um, Black families as a way for you to um, be able to improve your situation and your community. Um, and I know education is important to me, and it was important to my family. My father was um, among the first in his family to get a college um, degree. My mother had a high school education, but both of them expected me to do well in school and to get advanced degrees. And so um, how did you, so um, you grew up in Detroit, right? So yes. a lot in um, Meet Behind Mars kind of has a feeling of you know a young a younger girl growing up in in Detroit in the Midwest. Um, how much do you think your where you grew up and and the times that you grew up in Detroit informs your perspective and your writing? I always think of Detroit as this magic place um, because of because of you know the Great Migration and because of the auto plants and because it was one of the places where you could go and make a living for your family, move into the middle class, you know, and then, of course, everything kind of went down, and now it's being reborn as like this hipster paradise, which is, you know, so strange. So tell us about growing up in Detroit. Eileen, I could talk to you for hours. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it is. Detroit is a magic place, um, and it's a place when I grew up there in the mid and late 20th century, that felt very Southern because of the Great Migration, because my father had migrated there from Atlanta, Georgia, because so many of the fathers in my neighborhood and mothers in my neighborhood uh, were from Southern places like Mississippi and Alabama. Um, so it was, um, yes, a place in the 20th century where people were able to get uh, manufacturing jobs, um, and earn good money, and they were able to afford houses, um, and to have a pretty good life. 
Um, and then in the late 70s and 80s, we did see the bottom kind of start to fall out of the auto industry. Um, and when I was a teenager um, growing up in Detroit, it was known as the murder capital. And people always made jokes about Detroit. And there was an inferiority complex that a lot of Detroiters had, um, especially when you compared our city to the other Midwestern city, Chicago, right? Um, and so it was a place where people were proud because of the history of auto manufacturing, Motown, um, George Clinton was there. There are a lot of great people who came out of Detroit, who were born there, who grew up there, who um, started their careers there. But then in the late 20th century, it was a place that had been um, neglected, right? And there was a lack of investment and there were all these abandoned properties and people were calling us, you know, the murder capital. And there, were, there was a lot of crime. And so it was a place that we were proud of and at the same time, maybe ashamed of, right? Because mm. of all the problems, the urban problems that were going on there. But it's a magical place. I'm, I'm going back to Detroit in a week because the novel that I'm writing um, is about auto manufacturing um, and about this period that you, you've mentioned. And so I'm going to do some research and just to hang out. Um, but yeah, Detroit informs, I'd say, 75% of my imagination. Does you, do you still have family living in, in Detroit? I have a few people uh, who are related to me and lots of friends who are still there. But most of my family left Detroit, um, as I did. Like, I left Detroit in 1996 um, because it was so hard to, to, to make a living there or to, to find community and culture um, at that point. It is coming back, and I was there a couple years ago for a conference. And yeah, the gentrification of it is, I'm still processing what's yeah, going that's, on. Yeah, I think that it's such a problem because the pattern is so clear. You know, there's a, a neighborhood, a great neighborhood, and the hipsters smell it because the rents are cheap, and they move in, and they, you know, they, they bring nice coffee shops and cute restaurants, but then everybody comes in because they cleared the way and then everybody has to move out because all the people from the suburbs who think it's cool to have a pied de terre in the city move in and mm -hmm. it's you know the process is just so horrible for everybody who gets pushed out but i have to say i'm just going to bring up a little local thing here so there was just an article in the boston globe that explained the massive change in the demographics here and it's because um, people of color have been moving to the outer suburbs where you know the schools are better and the traffic isn't so horrible and white people are moving back into the city and now so now it I think things are better generally because you know the more diverse a place you live in the, no matter the, the better it's it is for everybody um, but it, it's just, you know, people have the impression of, uh, so the article headline was, people have the impression of Boston as being a white city. Well, it was, now it isn't so much, and the suburbs are, um, you know, where you can have an, a house and not an apartment that costs $5,000 a month. I mean, the housing prices here are insane. But I digressed on your, on your time, and I won't. So what about living in the West Coast? How do, you, how do you feel about that? Have you found like a creative community? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, so I'm, I live in a suburb right outside of Tacoma. Um, so I'm in Tacoma, which is the other big city. Seattle is, you know, the city that everyone knows here in Washington, but Tacoma is 35 minutes south um, of Seattle. And there's um, a very um, vibrant arts community here in Tacoma. But this um, displacement that you've been describing um, in Boston, in Detroit, it's happening in Tacoma too, right? So um, it's a national trend and we really do need to start thinking about how do we ethically um, invest in communities that have not received investment for decades, right? And how do we um, build up these urban communities without displacing people who have stayed there um, for decades. Um, it's like but who wants to be the last city in, in the gentrification process? So that's right. I agree with you. It's very hard to like figure out the balance. Um, so before I ask you to do a little reading for us, I am going to ask you about your up, your new novel or the novel in progress since um, it's been a couple. Of, so you probably wrote um, Meet Behind Mars. What? Pro tell us how you put the collection of stories together. Then I'll ask you to do reading. Then you'll tell us about your your new novel you're working on. Um, the stories were written over several years, um, and I decided at some point um, around 2015, I guess 16, to look at all the stories I had and to think about trying to put them together in a collection. Um, and then I had a friend, Desiree Cooper, who had published on Wayne State University Press, uh, and she encouraged me to um, let her give the manuscript to an acquisitions editor who could look at it and see if they were interested. Um, so that's kind of how the collection came together. I didn't think about the stories as one book as I was writing them, because again, I wrote them over several years, and I was focused on each story individually. But then when I looked at them, there were common themes, uh, one of them being migration, displacement. Um, and so that's how I kind of decided on, on the stories that you see in the book. Okay, um, now I'm gonna ask you to do a reading. And um, I chose, I, it was hard to choose um, amongst the stories because they were all they all, I think I wrote to you in my email, they all had an, just so much humor in them, but there's just underlying like lightning bolts of wrath flashing <laughs> through them, which I think is such a fantastic combination. So in fact, um, the title of this story is You Can Kiss All of That Bye-Bye. So without further ado, how about reading us a couple pages, please? Sure. These days, I'm inclined to think that my eccentric parents are going insane. I consider flying back home to see if this is true because these things are hard to gauge via video chat. They look crazy when we talk. Perhaps they're displaying the first signs of dementia, but how can I be sure? Last week, as my mother goes on and on about some cooking show that she likes to watch, my father thrust his face across my computer screen. Baby girl, he says, your mother is controlling my thoughts through her food. When you come home, you're gonna find a zombified version of me and don't say that I didn't warn you. Afterwards, my mother adjusts the camera onto her face and resumes talking about shrimp frittata. 
Dad, can you stop it? I say before mother wrestles the computer away. I'm trying to stretch my leg as I talk to my folks. A million frustrations are ahead of me. An appointment with an arthroscopic surgeon, dance rehearsals, the jeans I can no longer wriggle into without sharp pain shooting through my knee. I stare into my computer looking for signs that my parents are okay. You know that's a harmful archetype, don't you? This idea of a conjure woman who casts an evil spell? Exactly, my mother says. She is proud that I recognize historical representations and misrepresentations of womanhood. Her scholarship years ago was in the emerging field of women's studies. Her big regret is that she didn't contribute more to this discipline. But who in the end will blame her? The jobs she got barely paid her bills when here comes my father, an R&B singer, who promises to take care of her needs. She was first-generation Bahamian in the U.S. She was here on a visa that would soon expire. My parents married and moved to a rambler in Oakland County, Michigan, where, my mom has told me, she thought she would eventually pick up and finish her dissertation. All these years later, she's still ABD. But the power of ideas animates her every move. I've caught her mumbling her thoughts as she cleans glass tabletops with vinegar and newspaper as she flips conch fritters in their popping oil. She's an especially astute reader of other people. Your father is the type that loves to be in charge, she told me when I was nine. It burns him up that he was just a backup singer, you know. That's why he pushes you so. We were in the gymnasium for my school's production of The Sound of Music, and I had just left the stage after the first act in tears. During the performance, students in the audience had mocked my portrayal of Maria, and they'd laughed out loud at the kiss I performed with Kevin Susser, who played Captain Von Trapp. I'm not going back out there, I announced. I don't know what I expected my parents to do with that. Perhaps I thought they would kiss the top of my carefully braided head or offer some gesture to demonstrate their solidarity with my childhood suffering. That's what Mike and Carol Brady did each week on The Brady Bunch. At the time, my favorite episode was the one in which Bobby plots to run away. When his mother hears of this, she packs her own suitcase and declares that she will follow Bobby wherever he goes. The episode ends once Bobby understands that he is loved. To say that my father was unlike Mr. and Mrs. Brady would fail to capture the full flavor of his sadistic style of parenting. When I refused to go back on stage, my father grabbed the soft meat on the back of my neck. He pinched it. You want to be ordinary, huh? Or extraordinary? He asked me this with his face in my face. A trickle of sweat made its way out of his right sideburn. I remember blinking my eyes, trying to make sense of his abstract words. I knew that extraordinary was a higher goal than ordinary, but what did extraordinary look like? Wasn't heckling from the audience evidence that I was not only ordinary, but perhaps a terrible actress? You are a great performer, my father said, as if he could read my mind. Go out there and throw your heart into the second act if you don't want a whooping when we get home. Moments before the second act, as I prepared to walk on stage, he said, remember, throw your heart into it. Do it until their clapping sounds like love. 
I guess my father is thinking of his own advice these days because he's returning to music even though he is in his 70s. Over the years, he has figured out ways to stay in the public eye through speaking engagements and writing a memoir, but this time he intends to record new songs. Really, I say, studying his face on my computer screen. But he talks as if things have been set in motion as we speak. He says he has hired an agent. And your mother is fighting me like she fights me on everything, he says. She's trying to control my thoughts through stuff that she's putting in my food. Oh, daddy, I say. But he insists, she is. This talk of mind control seems a little extra, even for him. So my partner Mike and I discuss what's going on. And I purchase a round trip ticket to Detroit. Ah, there's Detroit again. And I have to ask you, before I ask you about your, your work in progress, two stories had the sound of music in them. Did you ever yeah. play Maria? I did. <laughs> I did. <laughs> How do you solve a problem like Maria, right? Solve a problem like Maria, yes. Yep. <laughs> okay, Maria, tell us about your new novel, please. Um, well, it's a little hard to talk about a work in progress without it sounding kind of insane at this point because it makes sense in my head. I'm not sure. Um, you know, the trick to writing is the story makes sense in your head, but you have to make it make sense on the page. Um, so I'll try to describe um, what I'm interested in or the question that the novel is interested in. Um, and I'm interested in cruelty, right? And especially corporate cruelty. And I got inspired to start writing this story based on something that my brother, um, who's no longer living, um, shared with me before he passed away. And um, he worked for 40 years building cars at General Motors. Um, and he told me that in 2008, 2009, when the automotive industry um, was bailed out by the federal government so they wouldn't have to file for bankruptcy, um, they were trying to get um, a lot of people in my brother's cohort. He had started working when he was 18, straight out of high school, and he worked there until he was 58. They were trying to get his cohort to retire, take early retirement as a way to save money. Um, and so they were offering all these early retirement plans. And Rodney said to me that he thought that they, they were offering the guys who had drug addictions the big cash option because they would take that oh, and then okay. use it on drugs. I don't know that that's true. I've done some research on addiction in the automotive industry, which is a thing. Um, but it doesn't matter whether his perception of what was happening is true or not. It made me start thinking about um, what we do for profit. Um, and if someone did take money for an early retirement and used it on drugs and then, let's say, died, who's responsible for that? So those are the questions that started bouncing around in my head. This, the novel is kind of shifting away from that, but I'm very much interested in cruelty, uh, which is um, I'm learning a subject that you know um, I'm not divorced from and I think everyone can relate to. Sometimes we're cruel even when we don't intend to be cruel, right? So where I kind of went in like, oh, there's corporate cruelty and they do things without thinking about other people, I'm starting to have a more nuanced 
idea of cruelty because I have been cruel to people, even though I didn't intend it. You know, if you're ashamed of something, you might not share information with people um, and then you end up hurting them, right? Even though you didn't intend to, but you want it to protect yourself. So these are some of the things that I'm thinking about, but the automotive industry is a setting um, and both here and in Mexico. So I've traveled to Mexico to look at the maquiladores there. Um, I'm traveling to Detroit to look at auto industries or manufacturing plants there. I went to a Toyota plant in San Antonio um, and had to totally rewrite part of it because the way that I imagined the inside of an auto plant um, was close, but yeah, it's a lot different once you go inside. Now, how long am I going to have to wait to read this book? <laughs> oh, Eileen, I don't know. My plan is to have a good draft by the end of the summer, but yeah. All right, but you promise you'll come back on when um, when the book is sold, bought and sold, and, and we're able to order it on Amazon, and it turns into a hit movie without uh, cartoon <laughs> characters in it. Because um, I've read, uh, my father used to sell cars. He actually sold Ramblers, if you can believe it. Uh, we drove around in a pink and black Rambler, um, oh which of God. course, you know, would be, would be like worth millions if we had it now. And so I always kind of felt, you know, and he, he'd go to, you know, to Detroit to these dealer conferences and stuff. So I always felt a certain interest in the auto industry. And then I read this book. And um, I'll, uh, I don't know if you've read it. It's called Day Job, and it's by a guy who basically worked on the line. I'll, say, I'll post uh, some information about it. It was just unbelievable. It was like an everyday on the line, what a, a difficult life it was. But how hard it was when you didn't have massive skills to leave because the pay was good. You know? So it's really an interesting. I'm glad you're focusing on it. I hope it's not too painful. I'm sorry to hear about your brother. But I'm so glad we had a chance to talk today, Renee. I really look forward to um, hearing more from you and about you. And I want to thank you for being my guest. It was, it was big fun to, to talk to you today. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much. Thank you, Renee. So yeah. viewers and listeners, I hope that you will seek out a copy of Meet Behind Mars by Renee Sims. You will enjoy these stories so much that I know you'll be just as eager as I am to read her next, um, her next book. So thanks and have a good night.